0: let's start in prayer then. Father, I thank you as always for bringing us together and giving us the opportunity to gather in your name in the life that we have in Christ and the shared union that we have in the spirit. And Lord, we we talk about these things often, but it's it's true that The reality and the gravity of this shared union in Christ is often lost on us in our day-to-day lives, and we, we don't really take note, and we certainly don't live out as we ought, the truth of being members of one another, of being the fullness of the Messiah himself as your church. But I pray that as we gather, that you would remind us of these things and that you would nurture in us by your spirit, always a greater and a growing sense of the glory of your church and the, the great privilege and high calling of being members of one another and a part of this thing that is called the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. And Father, help us to be faithful in that calling, not only with one another, but uh, as the believing community in the world. Your people gather all over the world in, in congregations, and that is good and a good and a, and a right thing. But may our communities of believers testify to the world as you intend, uh, that the Messiah has come, that Christ has done this work of renewal and cleansing, and in gathering, and that as we live out his life in the world, the world will understand all of what he accomplished, the meaning of his coming. As we are one, as you and the Son are one, the world will understand. So as we gather in your name, and we gather in that shared life, I pray that you would give to each one here a mind to understand hearts that are drawn towards you, free us from distraction, free us from whatever would keep us from worshiping you in spirit and in truth as we gather together in this time. So instruct us and encourage us, draw us more tightly to yourself. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we considered uh, the interval from... Israel's deliverance from Egypt, the Red Sea episode, uh, to the arrival at Mount Sinai. And we saw that that period brought about a series of tests for Israel, in which Israel was tested, but in which they also tested God himself. And the test pertained to the nation's faithfulness. Would they indeed be faithful to their God, as he would be faithful to them. And remember, again, the context for that was God's own declaration that Israel was his uniquely beloved son. God had, in Abraham, chosen Israel to be his people, not just as a people that he had some uh, connection with in some sense, but that they would be uniquely his son on behalf of the world. And so these tests were all set within that framework of Israel's sonship and obviously God's own fatherhood towards them. And we saw through those tests that in each case Israel failed. It failed in unbelief. It failed in ingratitude. It failed in rebellion, grumbling against God. And yet in each instance God Continue to remain faithful and that really sets the tone for all of Israel's life with God he would prove to be faithful though Israel would prove to be unfaithful and as we continue to move along week by week we'll see why that's important in terms of this basic tension that the scripture sets up of how it is that God will accomplish what he has promised to accomplish he bound up All of his intent for the world, for the creation, in his calling to Abraham and in the Abrahamic people, Israel. And so if Israel cannot fulfill its own calling, then God's purposes for the world are brought into jeopardy. And that leaves him in a place where either his purposes will fail, or he will come up with a new plan a new way to accomplish these purposes for the creation, to end the curse, to restore all things, or somehow he will cause the Abrahamic people, the people of Israel, to be Israel. And that's the story that the Old Testament tells, and it ultimately shows us how the way in which God uh, addresses that dilemma is the latter. He will cause Israel to be Israel. So, this week we come to uh, Israel's arrival at Mount Sinai, and recall again that this was itself a matter of fulfilled promise. All the way back when God made his covenant with Abraham, he said, Your descendants will be oppressed and enslaved for these centuries, and then I will bring them out with many possessions. I will bring them to myself. And God said to Moses and through Moses, when you bring out the people, according to my promise to Abraham, when you bring out the people from Egypt, bring them to this mountain where Abraham or where Moses had met with God on Mount Horeb, the burning bush episode. When you go back to Egypt, when you bring the people out, bring them to me to meet with me on this mountain. Well, that's what we're coming to. Three months out from Egypt, Israel's gone through these tests already. There's a failure there, even though that relationship with God has not been formalized. But they've come to Sinai for that purpose. They've come to Mount Sinai, and if you listen to the the message from the for this week that was you know from the the previous God with a series, I really want to split that into two weeks uh, because I, I want to slow things up a little bit there was a lot of content in that but especially because when we come to this thing called the law of Moses it's very important that we get that right that we understand it biblically because this idea of of law of Moses and even more broadly just law itself is critical to both of of the main theological systems in christianity in the west and certainly in in american christianity reform theology and dispensationalism both have this idea of law at the very center of their understanding and even the law of moses in particular and so so many of the the things that that are a part of those systems and even the disputes between them uh, a lot of those things would be resolved if there was a more biblical, truly biblical understanding of this concept of law. So I want to make sure that we get that right and, and we understand these things properly. So I want to move a little bit more slowly in that regard. But this uh, this arrival at Sinai then is captured for us in chapter 19 of Exodus. If you want to turn to that, I'll read some of this, and this is chapter 19 and the very beginning of 20 are, are kind of the gist of what we're going to be considering today. Basically, preparation for the covenant up to the point of God giving an introduction to the covenant or a preamble. We'll talk about that today as well. And then next time, Lord willing, we'll, we'll get into the actual um, specifics of the covenant, beginning with the Ten Commandments with the Decalogue. But in chapter 19, then verse 1, it says, In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And when they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the the mountain. What mountain? Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb that mountain that God had said he would bring the people to, the mountain where Moses had had his encounter with God as well. And Moses went up to God and the Lord said to him from the mountain, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself." In spite of your unfaithfulness, in spite of your unbelief, in spite of your grumbling, in spite of even your desire to go back to Egypt, I bore you on eagle's wings, and I brought you here because I am faithful. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. We will be faithful to him. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So that's where we'll start. And the first piece of this then is God's first interaction with Israel, preparing for the covenant when they arrive at Sinai, is for him to issue two charges to the people through Moses. The first charge identifies his intent in the union that he's to have with them. And and let me just back up very quickly and say, when we talk about this concept of covenant, again, a very familiar term in Christian vernacular and in biblical studies, but we don't often think about maybe what a covenant actually is. And a covenant is a contract, but it's a relational contract. Covenants are relational. That's true even in business contracts, right? Right? If you sign a contract uh, you know, as a business with a customer, it's relational. You say, well, no, it's business. It's about my job. Well, it's relational in the sense that that contract defines the two parties, or at least the parties to that contract. It could be more than two parties, but specifically the relationship between them. It might be, you know, again, a contract to say, okay, I'm going to do this plumbing work for you or whatever. But you, you relate two parties together in a defined and a prescribed way. They're related to one another. And a covenant, a contract, will always have the definition, the prescription, the sanctions, and even the... Rewards attached, you know the, the the positives and the negatives attached to that relationship. I will perform this service for you. I, this party hereafter referred to as this, and you, this party hereafter referred to as this, I will do this in return for this. And if you fail, then this will be the sanction. And if I fail, that right? That's the way contracts work. Well, biblical covenants are the same way. They're relational. Why do I say that? Well, as we'll see, the law of Moses is a covenant. It's relational. Why is that important? Because we tend to think of this idea of law as just a bunch of abstract, impersonal, moral, ethical obligations that have nothing to do with relationship, per se. You shall drive 45 miles per hour in this speed zone, right? That has nothing to do with the relationship between two parties in any kind of direct way. So this covenant into which Israel will be entering is a relational device. It's establishing and formalizing a relationship between God and Israel. So before they even get to the point of the forming of that covenant, God is laying some groundwork for it. And the first thing that he does is he reveals, through Moses, the intent in forming that relationship or ratifying, confirming that relationship. Israel is his elect son. That's already been made known to the people of Israel. And in that way, they are his unique possession. Israel is my firstborn my only begotten son. And that uniqueness, Israel as uniquely the possession of God for the purpose of being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What is priesthood about? Mediation. Priests themselves are mediators between two or more parties. Israel is to be a priestly people. Those two phrases of kingdom of priests and holy nation are mutually interpreting in that Israel's identity as God's only begotten son pointed to its obligation of consecration, which is what holiness is a part set apart to the Lord, his unique possession for the sake of devotion set apart to him to be his unique son. Well, a son and a father have a unique relationship of mutual devotion, right? But also in the priestly aspect of that, Israel's role to testify of its God and mediate the knowledge of God. So as a holy nation, as a consecrated people, and holiness doesn't speak to behavior in the first instance. It talks about what a thing is, not what it does. Holiness is not about how you behave. It's about who you are. And we're going to see that even as God says to Israel, you are holy for I am holy. That's a statement concerning who they are and how they understand themselves, not what they're to go do. So the implements in in the sanctuary, in in the the whole tabernacle, and later the temple structure, they were holy and they weren't even alive. Right? Right? altars and shovels and lavers and and basins and incense sensors and all those things were holy and they weren't even alive it talked about what they were in themselves in relation to god not how they behaved. so israel as a holy nation is set apart to god They belong entirely to him. They're consecrated to him. And as a holy nation, then in that way, Israel could fulfill its Abrahamic vocation. Ultimately, what this is all about, as we'll see, this whole thing of the law of Moses and Israel's covenant with God, is this is the way in which God is going to work out his covenant with Abraham, that in Abraham's seed, in those descendants of abraham the blessing of god the knowledge of god will flow out to all the earth's families this is serving the cause of the abrahamic covenant and its purposes in the first instance so beal in his in his book uh, the temple and the church's mission says this the entire nation was to live in the midst of god's presence And they were all to become like priests, standing in the presence of God in his temple and reflecting his glorious light, being intermediaries for the nations living in darkness and apart from God. Put simply, if Israel would fulfill its sonship... In that way, it would bring the blessing of God to all the families of the earth. How so? Because a son is of the father. When a son conforms to his sonship, when you see the son, you see the father. That's what Jesus was getting at when he said, If you see me, you see the father. When you see me, you see God he wasn't making a statement about his deity he was saying when you see me as a the faithful israelite a faithful son of god a faithful man you see the father whose image i am man is the image and likeness of god so if israel would fulfill its sonship faithfully through that lived out Life, the world would come to know Israel's God. The world would see in the faithful son, the father. That's the way Israel would be bear testimony. They wouldn't go out as missionaries into the nations, you know, and ring doorbells and pass out tracts. That's not how they would cause the nations to know God. It would be by being faithful in the midst of the nations. So this charge then to Israel... Israel is my unique possession, and if they will be a holy people, if they will manifest this consecration, then they will be, you know, if they will, if they will be faithful to my words and my covenant, then they will fulfill this holy, uh, this consecrated status that they have, and in that way they will be a kingdom of priests, through which the world, they'll mediate the knowledge of me to the families of the earth." And, as I've already hinted at, that charge just already at the outset gives insight into how the covenant should be perceived as law. We use this word all the time, law, 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 the law of Moses, the you know the the whatever, the the Decalogue, law, the law of God. Law versus grace, you know, you're not under law, you're under grace. Well, what laws do we keep? Are we under law? You know, we use these ideas and talk about these things, but we don't often define and understand what it is that we're really saying. So essentially, this idea of law, and and you've all heard me say this many times, law in, in the biblical sense is Torah. Most broadly, law means instruction, which is both revelation, revealing of truth, which also brings with it an appropriate response. We can call that obligation or prescription. What is required? So the law of Moses, when we talk about the the law, the law at Sinai, we're talking about the covenant that bound God to Israel. Israel. And that covenant wasn't something new. It wasn't something different. It was just the way in which God formally ratified the relationship of covenant father and son that he had established with the Abrahamic covenant. When Moses showed up in Egypt, he said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has remembered his covenant. You, his descendants, now is the time when he's going to bring you out liberate you from your enslavement. He's going to gather you to himself in order that that promise to Abraham and to Abraham's seed would be fulfilled. It's time for me to now make real in your lives as the Abrahamic people uh, the covenant that I established with your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, hundreds of years ago. So what's happening at Sinai, what we call the law of Moses, is God just formalizing in an explicit way that relationship that he established with Abraham and Abraham's descendants hundreds of years earlier. And and we'll see this as we move along, but this is why Paul can say the purpose of the law, the law of Moses in the salvation history, was to serve the promise it didn't change the promise. It wasn't a second way people can be saved or setting law, you know, opposed to grace or whatever it happens to be. The law of Moses served the cause of the, of the promise. It was a pedagogue. It was a custodian. It taught and held and nurtured and, and in a sense grew the son the Abrahamic people, the people of Israel, until the time of maturity when the Messiah would come. So the law of Moses is just carrying forward the Abrahamic covenant. It itself is the the working forward of the Abrahamic covenant in formally ratifying or confirming that relationship, that covenant relationship with Abraham's offspring. That's what the law of Moses is all about. And that's the reason why all of the particulars that the law of Moses addresses, and it has lots of laws and lots of prescriptions and lots of commandments, and all of those things have at the very center of them this obligation of love. Covenants are relational contracts. The covenant with Israel was the covenant ratifying the father-son relationship. So what were these laws all about? They were about the obligation of love. And you see that in in Jesus himself when you have um, the, the lawyer say to him, what is the great commandment of the law? What is he talking about? The law of Moses. And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things hang all the law and the prophets. This is what the law was all about. And Paul says the same thing in Romans 13. When he says any commandment you can name, and he cites uh, you know, several commandments from the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. But he says any law, any law that you can cite that God has given, it has its its, its fullness, its true significance, its ultimate significance in the obligation of love. And that's exactly what we would expect if indeed the law of Moses ratifies the relationship of covenant father and covenant son. So what's my point? The law of Moses was not about God throwing out a bunch of rules and regulations, you know, moral uh, obligations and ethics, you know, just a bunch of kind of abstracted commandments hoops for for people to jump through or you know to conform to some abstract moral standard this was the way in which Israel would live out its sonship in other words the law of Moses in all of its particulars said here's what it looks like for you to be my son here's what it looks like for you to live faithfully as a son with me and me to live as a father with you And one other way in which I can show that very easily is that the the Old Testament treats Israel's law-breaking as what? Relational unfaithfulness, as adultery. It doesn't say you've broken this statute, you know, here's your punishment, 50 days in jail, or whatever it happens to be. Israel's law-breaking was relational unfaithfulness. Israel was a harlot, Israel was unfaithful. And you see this if you read in in Ezekiel 16 and 23 in particular, you have two sisters, Ohala and Oholaba, Israel and Judah at that point, right? The two separate sub-kingdoms. And they're treated as absolute harlots. You see this in Hosea's prophecy as well. Chasing after other lovers, right? And chasing after other gods. It's always relational infidelity, that tells us then at the very basic level what God intends by this idea of law and our, and our obligation to it. So the last point then in that regard is that righteousness under the Mosaic law isn't compliance with you know, just commandments or rules or statutes in some kind of abstract, uh, you know, impersonal way, but relational faithfulness. Righteousness is relational faithfulness. And that was part of Israel's own condemnation that Jesus got at and that even Paul acknowledged, is that it was possible to be blameless under the law in a certain sense and yet be a blasphemer. You could, in a sense, honor God with your words and your works and your deeds and yet be Distant from him, be hostile in your heart. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount speaking to his Israelite audience, and he says, Many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did lots of works in your name. And I will say to them in that day, Depart from me, you lawbreakers. I never knew you. So it's a, it's a way of thinking about this idea of Torah and particularly as the law of Moses as a covenant uh, that I think is fundamentally important even as we would come to see how Jesus himself then embodies the covenant and how he fulfills the law in the New Testament sense of speaking of that. Very commonly when we say Jesus fulfilled the law, we say he kept all the commandments, he kept all the rules. You don't. You've broken all of God's laws. Jesus kept all of the laws. Therefore, if you believe in him, that perfection under the law, in that sense, gets put into your account. That's how we're kind of taught to think about it. And it really doesn't get at the biblical idea. So the first charge then that God gave identified Israel's identity and its calling under the covenant that was going to be ratified. And that provided the framework for their understanding of their obligation of of obedience. What would it mean for Israel to be obedient? And at the outset, they responded by committing themselves to be faithful. We read that. All that the Lord has required of us, we will surely do. Well, that then becomes the foundation for the second charge that God issues to them. This is before even the covenant starts to unfold. And the second charge is the terms by which they will encounter him. They've come to Sinai to meet with their God, to have the covenant relationship confirmed. And God gives them the terms of that encounter. And interestingly, God commands them to consecrate themselves, to set themselves apart, in a sense, to him for three days by washing their clothing and abstaining from any kind of sexual contact. So verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak to you. I will speak to you, and you will speak to them. And when they see this powerful, overwhelming manifestation of my presence... And they see me speaking to you, then they will be confirmed in their hearts towards you. And it says here that they will believe in you. It, it's not believe in him in the way we think about it. It's that they will they will be convinced that you are my man, that you are the mediator between me and them. And Moses went and told the people the the words of the people. That they, when he went and took it to them, they, you know, obviously embraced this. He took it back to the Lord, is the idea. Then the Lord said, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch even the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain will surely be put to death. No hand shall touch that one. If someone becomes defiled, violated by touching the mountain, you won't touch him. You just stone him with stones or shoot him through at a distance. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain, but they stand back. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated them, and they washed their garments, and he said, Be ready on the third day, do not go near a woman. So here's the second charge leading in the, you know, in the preparation of, of Israel's getting of the covenant at Sinai, and that's that they are to consecrate themselves and yet still stand back. And what's interesting in this is that even though Israel is the only begotten son, uniquely called by God, and even though they've come to a place of encounter, they have to stand back from him. If sacred space is again speaking to this this thing of God's presence in the world, how God is in relation to his creation and the interaction between him and his creation, specifically human beings, here we see that it's still a matter of mediated distance, right? God says, have them stand back. And in this case, the mediation will come from Moses and Aaron, and then the elders. Moses and Aaron go up onto the mountain. And then after the covenant is is given and it's written in the book and it's sprinkled with the blood and the people are sprinkled with the blood confirming the covenant then Moses and Aaron and the elders go up on the mountain to commune with God that's chapter 24 we'll get there but the point is is that even in this setting of Israel being God's unique son, there's still son in name only. The actual intimacy that would exist between a father and a son isn't there. There's still estrangement between God and his people. Their relationship has to be mediated. And even when God is dwelling in the midst of the camp, as we'll see, he's under multiple layers inside of the tabernacle, right? His presence, his shekinah glory is inside the Holy of Holies and nobody goes in there. The Levites can work around the perimeter. The priest can go into the outer room, the high priest only once a year and only then with appropriate offering to God. So even though God's in the midst of the camp with three tribes on each side, the tabernacle's sitting right in the middle, he's still removed from them. They have no access to him. It's still a kind of fearful mediated distance between them so the point already that we see is that this recovery of sacred space that god has promised hasn't yet happened god is working towards that but that hasn't yet happened israel is still an estranged son so the true divine human intimacy would not be recovered until man was restored as image son Which restoration would find its essential fulfillment in the incarnation? That's when God and man would be reconciled in the incarnation. And what would flow out from that? So, the last thing then um, that I wanted to talk about today, and this is the beginning of the making of the covenant, is the preamble. In every kind of covenant as a contract, and certainly this was true of ancient suzerain treaties, as I, as I have in the notes, a suzerain treaty was a, a covenant, a contract between a ruler and his people. Suzerain was a ruler. Ancient Near Eastern suzerain treaties have this same structure, which you would expect because they're covenants. If you look at a contract, even a business contract, what's the first thing that it does? It defines the covenanting parties, right? It defines the covenanting parties. It defines them in terms of the relationship with one another. And that's this idea of a preamble, a preamble to the covenant. So verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There's God's self-identification. So Israel is not just entering into a covenant relationship with the creator, a being who is the supreme creating being whose name is G O D. This covenant is with the God of their fathers who has shown himself to be their Redeemer, their Deliverer, and their Covenant Father. The one who has liberated them and gathered them to himself just as he pledged to Abraham. That's the way in which they understand this God who is covenanting with them. So he reveals himself to them as Yahweh, And as as we talked before, Yahweh is a, a, a clause that means he is. When Moses said, what do I tell the people when they say, who sent you? Who is this God? They'd forgotten God in Egypt. And when you go there, Moses says, when I go there and they say, who sent you? What do I tell them? And God says, tell them I am sent you. I am who I am. So, Echiyah, I am, when they would refer to him, it's he is, Yahweh. That's what the word Yahweh, the, the name Yahweh, and that's God's covenant name. And as I said, that idea of I am doesn't speak to the fact that God is eternal being, Uh, you know unchanging within his essential nature uh, you know in terms of his internal being it speaks to the fact that he is unchanging in his purpose his determination his will his faithfulness i will be who i will be in other words i will not change no matter what happens he's the unchanging god regardless of men regardless of circumstances His purposes, his will, his commitment will never relent. They will never change. He's the God whose intent for his creation, which he has bound up in Abraham by covenant grant, would be fully realized exactly as determined. Every time Israel would refer to their God as Yahweh, that's what they're saying. He's faithful to his covenant. He's faithful to his purposes. That's the way in which the scriptures define the righteousness of God. That's why in Romans, Paul can say, now the righteousness of God has been revealed to which the law and the prophets testified. It's not saying God's moral perfection. What is his righteousness? That faithfulness that has now been made manifest in the coming of the Messiah and the messianic work, Romans chapter three. So the flip side of that is by God identifying himself to Israel, it is allows Israel to itself be identified in relation to God. Israel is to see itself as more than just a chosen and redeemed people. They were sons of God as Abraham's offspring, heirs of the promises and the obligations of the covenant. But they were and they would remain covenant sons because God is Yahweh. It's because he is faithful He, as Yahweh, is the reason that they're sons, and he's the reason that they will continue to be sons. And even the name that he gave to them, Yisrael, we saw that with Jacob, the naming of him, that ambiguous double meaning of he prevails with God and God prevails, spoke to the fact that Israel was the entity that had triumphed prevailed in God's purposes out of a position of absolute weakness and inability, right? And now, as we've seen, failure. Israel is incapable. Israel is a chronic failure. And yet their very name says he prevails with God. The point is already we're to see that somehow Israel as the Abrahamic people will prevail to see God's purposes fulfilled, though they are unable, though they are a chronic failure. And the rest of the salvation history, the rest of Israel's history, just bears that out over and over and over again. Israel will fail. Israel will fail in David. The kingdom will be split. The kingdom will be divided. The kingdom will go away. And somehow through all of that, God says, I will yet, Accomplish my purposes. Israel will become Israel. Israel will become Israel. God would see to it. And that becomes this promise that flies along through the Old Testament. Somehow God will arise and do what he said he would do. He will renew and restore all things. And he will do it through the Abrahamic seed. So that's as far as I wanted to get today, and we can talk more about uh, these things in our discussion, but let me close us in prayer then, and um, we'll go from there. Father, these are very foundational things they're not they're not just things for us to uh, learn about in a in a Bible college class or seminary class and forget about uh, you know Bible information that that is somehow intriguing to know these are the very foundational truths of the faith that we have heard and that we have believed and that we find even embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ to have faith in him and to hold tightly to him and to live in and through him is to live according to these truths that have become yes and amen in him and so I pray father for each one here that Uh, as those who seek to grow in our intimacy with you in Christ, in our living relational knowledge of you in Christ, that you would help us to grow in in a living and vital and um, enthusiastic knowledge of these truths. They are the things that animate us. They are the things that inform even our understanding of ourselves. They are the things that tell us what it means to be Christians, what it means to be sharers in the Messiah. They are things that tell us even how to understand Jesus himself. So cause them to be precious to us. And Father, give us the discipline in the hearts, the interest, the tenacity, even the commitment of time and thought to grow in these things. Don't let them just go in one ear and out the other. If it's true that you would have us to grow up in all things into Christ who is the head, then I pray that we would yield ourselves to that work. If that's the Spirit's work, if that's the Spirit's labor in us, if that's the Spirit's goal in his work in people and in the creation, to see everything summed up in Jesus, then Father, help us to walk in the Spirit in that way, to truly grow in Christ And help us to be ministers of that growth to one another. To not be content to simply recognize one another according to the title Christian, but to truly desire and and labor to see each one grow up in Christ, to become mature in him. That we would be faithful amongst one another and that we would be faithful witnesses in the world. So we thank you for these truths. We thank you for the Spirit who gives us light, the Spirit who informs our hearts and minds, the Spirit who forms the life and likeness of Christ in us. And may we be faithful to that gift, to that power, to that endowment. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.